Welcome to ISS Corporate Solutions ESG Unlocked, a podcast that features engaging and insightful discussions with various ESG experts around the world. I am your host, Pamela Mutumwa. The topic for this episode is about the world reaching net zero by 2050. We have the honor of hearing from two experts on this, Marie-Benedict Boudon, also known as Marie Bay to her colleagues, and Damaso Zaglia. Marie Bay is Head of Second Party Opinion Operations at ISS ESG. She joins us from Paris, France, with over 12 years of experience in sustainability. Damaso is a senior associate within ISS Corporate Solutions, and he has over five years of experience in sustainability and joins us from London, England. As we dive into the topic, I'd like to point out that there are many of you who may have probably come across this trending term net zero, either through ads or company statements as you go about your daily lives. Whether you are familiar with this term or not, it is certainly worth understanding. Right now, globally, governments, NGOs, companies, and consumers are beginning to play their respective roles to work towards reaching net zero by 2050. Damaso, Marie Bay, and I will discuss what net zero is, what transition finance is, and how the financial markets have a significant impact. We will also cover what companies and consumers can do to reach net zero and how governments and regulatory bodies can support that journey. Damaso and Marie Bay, welcome to ESG Unlocked. It's a pleasure to have you both here. Hello, Pamela. Hello. Pleasure to be here. Hello, Pamela. Nice to be here with you too. Awesome. All right, the entire world reaching net zero by 2050 is less than 30 years away. This sounds very aggressive. Damaso, can you help me and our listeners understand what all this means? What is net zero and why is reaching it by 2050 a meaningful goal? Definitely, yeah. We've been hearing net zero a lot in the past two to three years. So when we take the definition, net zero means achieving a balance between the greenhouse gas emissions that we put into the atmosphere and those taken out. If you think about it, it's a bit like a bath. You're taking a bath, you open the tap and the water flows in. You yeah. take the plug out and the, and the water goes away. So when you achieve that balance and the water is steady in your bath, that's net zero. So you apply the same principle and when we add no more to what is taken away, that's when we reach net zero. And one of the points, and then you know, we always hear net zero to 2050. Why 2050? It's an important date because it's what the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change is telling us so scientists have done studies and trajectories and we have to be net zero by 2050 uh, to achieve 1.5 degrees and to uh, mitigate climate change and are they affiliated with the united nations is that absolutely it's one okay. of the biggest authorities of the united nations locating on climate change awesome we see that the financial markets are very influential in how the economy responds to events and changes. Now, I'm curious to know, how do the financial markets play or do they play a significant contribution towards this goal at all? Uh, Marie Bay, maybe you could take this question for us. Adding up on what Damaso has just mentioned around the United Nations IPCC, maybe let's also give a little bit of context around this goal. Yeah. And so according to another agency, which is called the International Energy Agency, this agency has run estimates and their estimates are that to reach net zero emissions by 2050, the world economy will need to more than triple 
their annual investment in clean energy to more than triple. That's a lot, yeah. To reach a goal by 2050. That's the International Energy Agency. Now, if we also look at another agreement that was signed in 2015, which is the so-called Paris Agreement, this Paris Agreement, uh, which gathered all the nations around the world, is setting out the potential contribution of the financial markets to net zero as well. And this very agreement is calling to make financial flows consistent with a pathway toward low greenhouse gas emission and climate resilient development. And I'm quoting the agreement here. So it means that the, the Paris Agreement is talking to the to the uh, role of the financial markets into achieving net zero. Since 2014, so it's been more than eight years now that we have seen in the capital markets, so one of the bits of the financial markets, we have seen the, the rise of sustainable finance. We have seen since then a growing and developing volume of green bonds, which have been very soon followed by innovative financial instruments, such as the sustainability link bonds and loans. And these instruments that are used by corporates embody part of the financial flows that were called upon by the Paris Agreement. Well, that's interesting. It looks like everything is changing and shifting and the financial markets are allowing investors to invest in different financial instruments to support this goal. Exactly. Right. Well, this leads us right into the concept of transition finance, which is something that I do want us to explore as well right now. Damasa, did you have anything to add to what Marie Bay described here? For sure. So as Marie-Benedict said correctly, uh, you know, there has been a huge rise in uh, sustainable finance. Uh, the green bond market has reached over 1.5 trillion uh, by now, if not more. Uh, but something that people started realizing and actually something that you know the, the industry started realizing in 2020 is that we will never be able, we were never be able to reach net zero without involving in these sustainable you know, financing also those sectors which are the more polluting ones. So we're talking about oil and gas, mm -hmm. metals and mining, chemicals and so forth. So of course it's great to have let's say you know, a corporate issue a green bond, but what if it's also an oil and gas company trying to issue a financial instrument where it's showing or trying to decarbonize yeah. uh, their activity. And that's what you know, transition finance refers to. So transition finance is nothing else than a form of financial support that helps high carbon companies to start implementing their long-term strategy and their, you know, their path to decarbonization. So that's very important that you know, transition uh, sectors are also included within the sustainable uh, financial market. All right, but, so Damaso, yeah. let me clarify here for some of our listeners who are new to this. So green bonds are issued to fund environmentally friendly projects, and then transition bonds are bonds that are meant to fund methods of reducing GHG emissions. Partly. Uh, so green bonds have been around for a long time, since 2007, and they're used to finance uh, green environmental instrument uh, projects. So. On a transition side, however, is uh, when companies are trying also to shift their activities towards more environmentally friendly ones, which can be through a bond, so it can be also through a green bond, let's say transition bond, or can be also through a sustainability linked bond. So that's also a, a way that transitioning companies have been 
uh, adopting in the last two years in order to decarbonize, uh, to decarbonize their, their activities. All right, well, thanks for clarifying that. Now, can you give us some data or do you have any information on what the progression has been like in the market when it comes to the amount of dollars people are investing both in green bonds and transition bonds? What does the landscape look like and what is the trajectory? So as I said earlier, you know, the transition market is still a, a nation, it's still in its infancy in a certain way. It started around 2020. And by third quarter of 2021, which is the data we have right now, it had hit USD $10 billion. Compared to the green bonds market, uh, by the same time, it was above $1.5 trillion. So wow. there's still a long way to go. Trillion versus billions. Um, exactly. Yeah, there's a lot of room for improvement, but it's definitely good to see that there is movement there and people are considering transition options like you described, the two options that we see right now. All right. Now, it's quite evident that companies, of course, like we were talking about the transition finance methods here, they play a significant role in incorporating net zero into their own strategies. I was doing a little research recently, and I learned that hard to abate sectors. And again, for all listeners who are new to this, it's basically a term we refer to sectors that are very difficult to decarbonize, such as steel, cement and the chemicals industries you know, due to various factors when it comes to how they operate and run their businesses. For these hard to abate sectors, they're responsible for about 22% of global carbon dioxide emissions. This is a huge chunk. That's almost a quarter, right, of the source of greenhouse gas emissions coming from these sectors that already struggle to do business differently. How significant is the dependency we have with these sectors and being able to reach net zero. Marie Bay, would you like to take this question and help us understand what does this mean for our goal here to reach net zero? Yeah, absolutely. And Pamela, I think it's uh, very important what you've just said, the 22% of the global carbon emissions that are coming from those heart of it sectors. And it is essential to understand that it won't be possible to achieve such goal by leaving players on the side, and notably those massive players that are embodied by the heart of its sectors companies that you just mentioned. An example of how to achieve this goal is supporting organizations which have those carbon intensive assets through the adoption, for example, of green technologies. It can be, for example, an oil and gas company that is seeking to change its portfolio of activity and decarbonize it and switch to renewables, for example. So that's one example that we can think of in the uh, oil and gas sector. But what we see in our day-to-day practice as a second-party opinion provider is that more and more of those organizations, as Damaso was mentioning just before, they are engaging into the transition, which allow them to access the necessary investment to the transition. And those instruments will likely keep developing in such sectors. And this is where the second party opinion can really support the goal set by the Paris Agreement we discussed earlier on, uh, providing an additional level of credibility to companies, but Mm -hmm. also to investors on the issuance that are put on the market by those companies. What investors need is to be able to have trust uh, the emission and to understand what's the context of the emission And it's even more important in the case of a hard-to-abate sector company 
given that the let's say their natural activity is not naturally linked to a sustainable finance instrument and so the, the credibility that an, a second party opinion is bringing into the play is a real added value to to this investment process absolutely so basically the second party opinion entity would be looking at this transition bond and understanding that they are trying to transition it's a hard to abate sector company but this is where they evaluate the honesty and credibility of the goal and mission of issuing that bond so and damaso also feel free to to jump into the into the discussion here but uh, indeed the objective of the second party opinion is really to review the framework of the issuance understand what are the 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 characteristics that have been designed for the issuance against international standards and also to understand what are the projects or what are the 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 KPI set for the given issuance mm-hmm. and who is the issuer uh, issuing the instrument so it's a matter of assessing and providing an independent opinion on a given issuance indeed yeah and i think in, at the end of the day it it really is a question of credibility here yeah. what we're doing here is assessing the credibility especially in sectors uh, you know that are hard to abate for transitioning activities it's even more important to have somebody coming in and looking at you know the framework looking at the projects are they actually sustainable yeah do they have any you know externalities and you know what is the strategy of the issuer that's also something more important um, you know of course it's great that you issue you know transition bond green bond you might finance you know for the next two three years some renewable energy plants but what is yeah. your long-term strategy? So it really is important. And that's something that we'll discuss probably more later in this podcast as well, in terms of regulation, what you know, mm-hmm. governments can do and so on. Yeah, well, that's really interesting. Thank you for clarifying what that is. And absolutely, it's good to know that we have second party opinion entities that can help us understand what's going on behind the scenes. People are going to invest in these companies transitioning. It's good to know that their methods are, are clear. Also, so what's interesting is I actually recently received a letter from my energy company here in Washington, D.C., asking me if I would like to opt into receiving clean energy going forward. And what was interesting to me is they basically said, I don't need to do anything. I'm all set up. I just need to give them the green light. But the one thing they did call out was that my bill would actually increase by switching to clean energy. So which got me thinking, I'm curious to understand is this something that consumers can expect in switching to clean, cleaner energy sources? Should we expect to spend more? Well, that, that's actually a, a good choice you have there. You know, 10 years back, you wouldn't have. Uh, I know, right? It was, it was pretty out. interesting. It was pretty cool to see that I felt pretty good, you know, working in the ESG industry yeah. to be able to brag and say, I actually pay for clean energy in my home. But, you yeah, know, it's definitely a good news. So the good news is that in the last 10 years, we've had, uh, you know, a change in, in awareness, you know, climate change awareness has risen significantly. So if we take some studies, for example, in 2021, there was a survey that said that 70% of adults in the U.S. thought climate change was real. So that's, that's already something. And they were yeah. ready and willing to make a change in their daily behavior. And I think, you know, uh, this change in daily behavior is a very important uh, part for consumer. So we, we all, I mean, myself, I was born in an age of consumerism and, and going buy, buy, buy. 
But I think we now got to a point where we need a shift in paradigm. It's not about consumerism, but it's about embracing conscious consumerism. Mm-hmm. And that's you know something that we can do on a daily basis. Uh, there are many examples, you know, from travel awareness. You know, what what car do you own? Is it electric or not? Uh, do I buy an electric one or not? Do I take public transport? Okay, I'm going on holiday. Where should I go? Should I take the train or should I take the airplane? It can be lots of questions. It can be how you shop as well. You know, how you eat every day. Your meat consumption. Obviously, we know that meat consumption is responsible for. For, for one of the major CO2 emissions into, into the atmosphere. Yeah. So be conscious and responsible around that, around your whole household uh, waste, limit single-use plastic, recycle. And I'm not here to tell you exactly what there is to do. There's so many ways. Uh, yeah. And one of them is also like, where do you buy your energy from? And, and what you just said, the energy um, provider coming to you and giving you that option is definitely something valuable. And as, as you said as well, be ready to pay more. Definitely, yeah. right now, it will be uh, more expensive, but think long-term. Hopefully, one day, we'll reach that scale uh, in which the trade-offs won't exist anymore, and, and that's really where we are aiming at. Great elaboration on giving consumers opportunities to, to identify where they can make changes in their lifestyle and habits, like you mentioned some travel there. We all know to do better. <laughs> For the most part, but it's, it's really a matter of choosing to do better as well. All right. I know you had mentioned that we would touch on regulatory changes and how governments can support companies in this transition as well. So let's, let's dive into that. I see governments play a big part in incentivizing change, providing credit or tax breaks. Let's break down some of what we know regarding this. Are many countries on board right now in supporting this and what are they doing to support this? Sure. No, as you said, it um, governments have a vital role in steering the, the economy. You know, they influence not only like companies but also consumers, and and that's you know the ultimate um, kind of echelon on, on the scale. If we look at uh, their roles, there are mainly two. So one of them is setting country level targets in line with global net zero. So that's one first step that you know governments do and the second one is translating those targets into credible policies that then incentivize capital away from high carbon models and towards net zero assets something that we see now on you know on the corporates in the private uh, sphere mm-hmm. now if we look at the countries who actually started doing that or are starting to do that by may 2021 we had 131 countries so covering about 73% of the global greenhouse gas emissions that had adopted or were just considering uh, net zero targets. So we are getting there. Uh, it's still good. something underway. And, and one of the main ways to do that as well, and we're talking about sustainable financial instruments here, is through sovereign issuances. So there have been a number of sovereign issuers, some of which ourselves, ISIS Corporate Solutions, have worked on you know, with second party opinions as well. So there have been issuances by Germany, by Switzerland and Austria. Those are all great examples that show how countries are, are, are shifting the transition strategies and, and supporting the market itself with liquidity, leading by example and encouraging the corporates to do the same. All right, so it's not only just companies issuing sustainability related bonds, but it's also at the government sovereign level doing yeah. the same. Absolutely. Damaso, you... Definitely helped us understand the the work that governments are doing here. But Marie Bay, do you have anything else to add? 
Yeah, on the regulatory aspect, I think indeed the, the governments have a lot to do and they are already doing a lot. And I think one example of that is the proliferation of taxonomies that we see arising around the globe. Taxonomies that are looking into the environmental impacts of economic activities. And this has a direct link with what Damaso just mentioned in terms of the issuances uh, by governments. It's uh, also driving how corporates can shape their issuance to consider those economic activities that are identified by governments as having positive impact on the environment, be it on the climate, be it on biodiversity, et cetera, et cetera. Interesting. That's really great. Also reinforcing uh, what's working and what will lead us in the right direction. So the last thing I want us to, to touch on is understanding the challenges that we face in reaching net zero together. I mean, it is very clear that it requires everybody from consumers, governments, companies, second party opinion entities. What do you see here? It's a very complex environment and we are faced with many challenges. Well, the first one is that net zero targets, we've been talking a lot about that, they're not mandatory so for all companies. And that's a very important point. As of now, companies are starting to set out targets, trying to achieve them, but it yet isn't mandatory. The second point I wanted to raise as well is that there are a lot of regulations. Uh, however, it sometimes makes it complicated as well for companies. Where, where do we start? Where, where, you know, what, what is the right regulation for us? What is the right standard? And it's great to have different levels and also different, I would, I would say some taxonomies are a bit more stringent than others. It gives a bit more uh, you know, flexibility to issuers and to companies, but there probably should be a bit more guidance for them. And maybe also to, to add to that, I think when we speak to underwriters or issuers uh, we work with, it is important to, to stay sort of humble in that, uh, in that remit and not fix the bar too high. It's important to plan. It's important to achieve at the right level. This is where the second party opinion is really playing a role yeah. um, with this independent review on the achievability of the targets that issuers are setting for themselves. Indeed, yeah. And I think it brings it back to the, the definition of net zero, right? When we, we, we said the notion of balance. I think it all stays yeah. in balance in the sense that, you know, the market to go forward, it has to be inclusive. It should let all actors, different sectors, different level of expertise, uh, consumers, governments, it should let them all play within, the, within this environment. But there has to be as well a certain level of stringency around, okay, you're setting a target, it has to be credible. It doesn't have to be, uh, you know, too difficult to achieve, but it yet has to be a target that is right. actually helping the cost. So I think balance is probably the word we have to take out of this podcast. <laughs> yes, balance absolutely sounds like the right way to frame it, Damaso. Now, as we close out this episode, I'd like to take time out to recap some of the main takeaways for our listeners. And I'll start by saying that net zero by 2050 refers to the world coming together to reduce global carbon dioxide emissions to net zero by the year 2050. And the goal is aimed at limiting the long-term increase in the global temperature to one and a half degrees Celsius. We talked about the role green bonds play to finance environmentally sustainable activities and transition finance as a way of financing activities that facilitate low carbon transition 
for various sectors such as hard to abate sectors, for example, oil and gas. We also learned that it is not only companies, governments, and the financial capital markets that play a role, but also you and I with our lifestyle choices as consumers to collectively work towards the goal of reaching net zero by 2050. Damaso Amiri Bay, this was an insightful conversation. So thank you so much for joining me and sharing your expertise with the ESG Unlocked community. Thank you very much, Pamela. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. This was ESG Unlocked, brought to you by ISS Corporate Solutions. And as your host, I appreciate you listening in and encourage you to share this podcast with your friends and colleagues, as our mission is to help you better understand the ESG landscape. And please subscribe to get an alert for new episodes and follow ISS Corporate Solutions on LinkedIn for webinars and insightful thought leadership pieces as we continue to explore and unlock the value of ESG.